so good to be worshiping in my own neighborhood this morning. Uh, thank you for your uh, warm uh, welcome and hospitality today. And as always, it's good to be with, uh, with my colleague clergy here, uh, uh, Lisa and Mark. Uh, I understand that, uh, that Donovan is, is praying very devoutly. Uh, wherever he may be and, and whomever he may be with. Uh, and, uh, and I also understand that you're looking forward to his return. At least uh, Lisa and Mark assured me of that earlier. Uh, this morning we're going to think for a few minutes about uh, the story of uh, Martha and Mary and what happened in their house in Bethany uh, one Sunday after church. Um, uh, I always, I always teach or preach on this particular lesson pretty warily. I'm careful about this one. Uh, I really enjoy, I don't know, are, are we having a reception or anything after church? I always enjoy those receptions after church. I'm fond of pimento cheese sandwiches and fried chicken. And uh, I love the folks who are uh, uh, absent during a portion of the worship service because they're busy uh, cooking next door. Uh, so I'm, I'm wary about what I'm preaching. I'm wary too for, for an, an even bigger reason and that is that I am married to a woman whose name is Martha Marie. <laughs> now I never quite know which one I'll wake up beside in the morning. But I can tell you, it gives you a certain moment of pause and caution when you start preaching this particular lesson. Uh, ten years ago, uh, people of this diocese were kind enough to give uh, Marie and me a sabbatical, which, which was a wonderful time of, 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 of education and refreshment and enlightenment. We came back with all kinds of, uh, of ideas about uh, what was going on in the diocese and in the church, many of which uh, have been uh, 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 come to fruition in the last decade. One of the highlights of our uh, time in, in Palestine on sabbatical in the Holy Land was lunch one day with a large, joyous, happy, hospitable Palestinian family in Bethany. Now Bethany's where Mary and Martha lived with their brother Lazarus and that's where the story in this morning's gospel lesson would have taken place and I want to tell you those Palestinian Christians work hard to put on lunch. It was the most remarkable meal. It's one of those things where you've just finished the appetizer and you're full and they're coming out with the next course. And this all through lunch, and it was just, it, it was remarkably a good meal and remarkable hospitality. Incidentally, in the background, as we ate and as we visited with our friends, what we were hearing the whole time were the calls to prayer from the uh, Muslim church down the street. And so we had that background uh, music, so to speak, as we were sitting there uh, enjoying our fellowship. So I have a little bit of an idea what the scene was for, 
for Mary, for Martha, for Jesus, how important that meal was and how hard Martha was working to prepare it. This lesson hits me in particular where, where I live day in and day out because I am an anxious and troubled person. Uh, I'm, I'm awake most mornings, sometime between 3 and 4.30, and usually unable to get back to sleep, thinking about a myriad of issues and problems in, in my own life, in the life of my family, my children, my friends, my church, that I know I probably won't be able to solve at all. And I certainly won't be able to solve between 3 and 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Am I the only one here who has that experience? Well, maybe you're not worried about your church, but I bet some of you are. Even between 3 and 4.30, if there's a warden or a treasurer here, I'll bet, I'll bet you wake up between 3 and 4.30 thinking about your church too. Uh, we are all in this age plagued by anxiety and worry. And we are all in that not different at all from our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and all of humanity stretching back to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. We all suffer from anxiety and worry and troubles. Um, so Jesus finds himself at lunch with his friends Mary and Martha. But Martha is miffed at Mary. She wants Jesus to set her sister right. Now, can you imagine tension between siblings? Has anybody here ever seen that? It's very rare, isn't it? siblings always get along so well and certainly one sister wouldn't turn to the other and say oh you've expected me to do all this hard work and uh and you're sitting out here visiting with the company after church that would never happen in any of our homes but maybe you agree with martha maybe you don't that's not the point today this isn't a case study and the contrast of two different personalities we miss the point of the story, I think, if we side with one person or the other, if we side with Mary or with Martha. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. That's the fundamental point of the story. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So if we're going to grasp what it is that's being said to us this morning in our gospel lesson, we need to focus on his words. Listen, here's how he said it. Martha's complained, she's whined, she's made her point. And Jesus responds, Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about, you are preoccupied with, you are worried about, you're making a big deal over many things. One thing is needful. One thing is necessary. There's one thing you got to have, even if lunch isn't served on time. And Mary has chosen it. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. The good portion, 
which shall not be taken away. Now, the, the moral of that, the point he's making, seems pretty straightforward. He's painting a picture of a person, Martha in this case, overwhelmed with many things. A person who's too busy with her chores. Come take the garbage out, John. Even for the Savior's words and the kingdom of God. Now, please note, Jesus never says, I'm not saying, you shouldn't say, that Mary was doing something bad or something wrong. That's the whole point. Fixing lunch is a good thing to do, right? Fixing lunch is a good thing. Taking the garbage out later is a good thing too, John. And there's a Martha sitting on my shoulder. And Jesus isn't telling us not to do the good things, but he's telling us not to miss the point about what the one truly necessary thing is. Too often we think that it's sin, flagrant sin usually, and breaches of God's commandments alone that lead us away from Him. But this morning's lesson tells us something different, doesn't it? It tells us that we can become so caught up in doing the things we ought to do that we miss the opportunity to come closer to Him. You get it? Fixing lunch is a good thing to do, and yet it can distract us from being nearer Jesus. Remember some of the lessons in the, in the last month or so that we've studied on Sunday mornings? Jesus is talking about family and how we have to reject and push aside even our fathers and mothers and our, 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 our sisters and brothers if they're going to distract us from that primary relationship with Him. Having a healthy family is a good thing. Loving your father and mother is a wonderful thing. It's one of God's commandments. Loving your brothers and your sisters is a less painful way of living. <laughs> but any of that can distract us, if we permit it, from recognizing the one thing that's really necessary. Preoccupation with perfectly legitimate and very important things in life can distort our priorities and pull us away from the font of grace. Pull us away from the font of grace. Name something that's necessary, something that is, as Jesus says this morning, needful. Education. Education is wonderful, but not ultimately needful, not ultimately necessary. A clergy friend of mine once said, if, if all you do is educate a sinner, all you end up with is an educated sinner. I know plenty of very well, very well educated people who are perfectly miserable. How about you? Your health. You remember the, the, that, that great television com commercial uh, uh, back, back when uh, Martha Marie and I were still young and very healthy and we'd be out taking a long walk. We would kid about that commercial where the, where the man who was about the age I am now put his arm around his wife who was about the age I am now and said, uh, uh, we have our health 
And when you have your health, you have just about everything. Remember that commercial from television? Oh, you're not old enough to remember it. Okay. Um, it's a lie. Health is a good objective. Getting in shape, eating right, getting plenty of sleep and rest, going to see the doctor when you need to go see the... All that's good. But it's not ultimately needful. Have you ever known a great athlete, somebody in great shape, who is perfectly miserable in his or her life? Yes, you have. And I have too. I've known people who can strike every pose of the weightlifter in the gym in the mirror. And they're still very, very unhappy people. They found a good thing to do, perhaps, but it's distracted them from the one thing in life that they really need to focus on. So education, health, we can list others, money, status, anything else that you can name in this world that you might dedicate all of your time and resources and energy to can be a distraction and is not necessarily needful and certainly is not going to give you ultimate happiness. Without those things, thousands are happy. Some of the most joyous people I've ever known in my life are the ones who are sick, oftentimes dying. They're sick, they're dying, but they know they have the answer in their heart. Don't you know people for whom that's true? In my ministry, some of the people that I've worked with who have, who have been ministered to, who have been, been the, the most content, the least worried, are those who've had the least in, in terms of, 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 of resources, who've lived in the, in the shabbiest home, had the smallest savings accounts, maybe none at all, and yet they had such a great relationship with God and Jesus Christ that it eclipsed all of those concerns that so many of us spend our lives, literally spend our lives struggling for. The grace of God, the grace of God which brings salvation is the one thing that is needful. The one thing that is necessary. Those who seek it, those who focus on it will never be disappointed. Their treasures will never be taken away from them. And you remember those, those great words of, of Paul who says that nothing in all creation, neither life nor death nor powers nor principalities nor things that are or things that are to come, nor height nor depth, no, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one needful thing. Let me tell you about one of the greatest preachers in history. His name was Coelet. And Coelet, you may not know the name, but you know some of the things he wrote because he's the principal preacher in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the sentiments of Quellet sound incredibly modern. He was a modern man in terms of his outlook on life and his, his psychology. He talked about the uncertainty and the anxiety of, of his age and was 
driven by the single question, where can we find enduring meaning in this world? Where can we find enduring meaning in this world? This is the Old Testament preacher. His most frequent refrain was, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. By which he meant, this is an empty existence. Vanity, when, when we talk about something being done in vain, taking the name of the Lord in vain, means we're taking it in an empty sense without the fullness of meaning and understanding and belief with which the word of God, the name of God is to be spoken. And that's the characteristic that Coelet saw in all of human life. Emptiness. Thinking in one moment that you've found the answer, and then in the next, having it vaporize before you. He uses that term vanity over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not satisfied merely to state that everything is meaningless. He actually considered different areas of life on earth. He talked about knowledge. He talked about wisdom. He talked about labor. He talked about political power. And in each of those areas of life, all of the common areas of concern in your life and mine, he found meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. He tried everything under the sun. He looked everywhere for the answer. He said, a generation goes and a generation comes, but there is nothing new under the sun. All is vanity. All is meaningless. As far as Coelet could see, while humans are pretty much at the mercy of time and chance, they do know one thing for certain, and you and I know one thing for certain too, and that is the day is coming when each of us will die. Death is the one great certainty of life. And this frustrated the preacher so much that he reflected on death at great length. He concluded that death rendered every human achievement and status meaningless. A friend of mine told me recently they don't hook a U-Haul van up to the hearse as they're taking you to the graveyard. <laughs> Growing old and dying, he said, is like watching storm clouds, storm clouds, move in and ruin a sunny day. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. <laughs> Well, it sounds so modern because he so vividly captures the despair of a world without a God who will save us. He captures the despair of a world without a God who will save us. And he's rightly described the horror of a world under the curse and apart from the one thing it really needs. The good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that gospel whom Lisa was referring to a while ago when he talked about servants of the gospel being in, being in Belize now or working in this parish from day to day, telling people about Jesus and the love of God. That message, the answer to Coelet's plea, 
is found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus who as he hung on the cross and as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this so empty? Why is this so meaningless? Experienced both the vanity, the meaninglessness of life, this meaningless death on the cross to the world's view. And at the same time, turned that vanity, turned that meaninglessness on its head, found the deepest meaning in history in that death, and then prevailed over death and assured you and me that all is not empty, all is not vain, all is not meaningless, and that in a relationship with him, in understanding his death, in faith in his resurrection, and in a relationship with him, we can have true meaning, real meaning, and understand what God has created us for, which is to know and love him and one another. After all, by, by facing death, Jesus conquered the biggest fear facing Coelet. He showed that for believers, death is not the end of all meaning, but the entrance to eternal life. That's what Paul's talking about in our first reading today. You who were once estranged, God has now reconciled you to him by his death. Reconciled to God, how? By his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. This is ancient language, but it's pretty easy to understand. Christ died for you. Christ will stand beside you. He will be there before the judgment throne of God when you and I appear someday before him and present us reconciled blameless and free of guilt. Now that, that, that is the one thing needful. That understanding is the one thing necessary. Heaven, eternity, restored relationship with God, friendship with our brother Jesus Christ. If I have those things, then I have just about everything. Patrick Henry drew up his last will and testament. Remember Patrick Henry, give me liberty, give me death. And this is what he said in the closing paragraph of his will. I have now disposed of all my property to my family, he wrote. There's one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is the Christian religion. If they had this, and I had not given them one shilling, they would be rich. And if they had not this, and I had given them the whole world, they would still be poor. Well...
Let me close with an old Anglican prayer, a great prayer from one of the early formative figures of our faith. His name was Thomas Cranmer, about 450 years ago or so. He lived in an age of anxiety. He wound up being burned at the stake, by the way. Time of anxiety, of worry. I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet Thomas Cranmer would wake up at 3.30 in the morning worried about the church. What do you think? But he gives us this prayer. And I want you just to listen. You don't need to bow your head or close your eyes. Just listen. But as you hear the words Cranmer wrote so long ago, let them be at work in your heart, in your mind, and in your life. Most loving Father, it is your will for us to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on you who care for us. Preserve us from faithless fears. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties that no clouds of this mortal life may hide us from the light of that love which is immortal and which you have manifested to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Martha, Martha, you worry so much. You're so anxiety-ridden. We're going to have lunch. But first, come sit at my feet, Jesus says. Know me. Love me. Trust me. And Martha, if you do that, then you will have the one thing that you really need not just for lunchtime today, but for all of eternity.